Take out your Bibles and stand with me for our scripture reading this morning. Turn to the book of Matthew, where we've been for the last couple of months. In Matthew chapter 9, we'll be reading verses 18 through 34 as Pastor Bruce continues in the series, Follow Me. Today we see there's reason for hope. And our text is in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 34. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and he saw the flute players and noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out to all that land. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, so the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your call to follow you, follow your son. I pray that we would have open hearts and minds to learn from your word this morning. Be with Pastor Bruce as he brings us our message. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Zach said, we're continuing in our series that we've been in for the last few months, last couple of months, a series based on the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10, a series we've been calling Follow Me. And I have to admit, I'm so glad you're here this morning because today's passage is packed full of reason to hope. And so if you're here and you're like, man, I just need some hope in my life. You've come to the right Sunday. And so I am really excited that you're here. Not that I haven't been excited in past messages. All these messages are filled with hope because they are filled with stories about Jesus Christ. And any time you're talking about Christ, there's always a reason for hope. As we continue and as we follow Christ here specifically in Matthew 9, we encounter some desperate people that are facing some desperate situations in life. The word desperate, it's a, it's a rather powerful word. It means you have an urgent need in your life or an urgent desire. And so we use the word desperate for extreme situations as perhaps you said to yourself, I desperately need a vacation. How many have said that? Sure, we all have. I desperately need a vacation. If you're a KU fan, you've used the word KU football team desperately needs a win. 
If you're a Missouri fan, well, you have your wish come true. If you're a K-State fan, you got your wish yesterday. Or you, maybe you heard the saying, she's so desperate she will date anyone. Or maybe you've heard, do you have anyone I can talk with? I'm desperate. Or maybe you've heard the saying, or you even said it yourself, they drove to the Mayo Clinic out of desperation. And perhaps you can identify with this, please pray for me. I'm in desperate need of God's help in my life. We use the word desperate for a variety of situations that are desperate in our lives. You can probably think of times in your own life, maybe even now, when you were desperate. And so when something pushed you to the point that you were willing to do just about anything to get help, to find a solution, or to even change the circumstances that were causing you pain. Why? Because desperation, it creates action in our lives. When you become desperate enough in life, you will do something. I remember as a youth pastor here in our church back in the late 90s, we took a group of teens on summer camp down to uh, Cherry Mountain Youth Camp, which was uh, down by Lake the Ozarks. And so that afternoon, uh, me and a couple of teens, we decided to go exploring. We're in the Ozark Mountains there, and hey, let's just let's find out what's around here. We're kind of in the hills, and, and I, we knew there was a creek um, kind of down yonder, and so we got into one of the old blue vans our church used to have, and, and we took off down to this creek area. And uh, the road just kind of turned, the pavement road turns into a gravel road, and lo and behold, the gravel road turns into a sand road right there at the bank of the river. And I didn't think much about it. We'd get out, we explore, we'd get in the river, we'd just have a great time. A couple hours later, we'd get back into the van, and I tried to get out, and I'm stuck. We're stuck in the sand, the sand bed right there. And we're, we're, I don't know, a mile, two miles, three miles away from camp. All of a sudden, I'm desperate. I'm very desperate. What am I going to do? And my desperation created action. We saw a couple uh, who had just come on the scene there, and, and they were kind of doing the same thing, and I cry out to them, Help! Can you help me? Well, they couldn't help me, but they could give me a ride back to camp. And when I got to camp, I got some help. Zach, you remember this, don't you? Yes, he does. He was there. And uh, needless to say, long story short, we got a chain, got the other van, and we pulled the other van out. I was desperate, and it created action. For whatever reason, if you find yourself in a place of desperation, I've got some good news for you. The Word of God has some good news. Our passage today in Matthew 9 contains great hope for desperate people. And here's what we're going to see in these three miraculous stories that Zach read for us. Look at it in your notes coming up on the screen. When you've got nothing left but faith in Jesus, you've got everything. Why? Because nothing is impossible for Jesus. Matthew 9, 18-34 shows us four miracles characterized by desperate faith. And we learn that nothing is impossible for Jesus in each of these miraculous stories. Jesus is the Savior of desperate people. He's the Savior of people who have reached, if you, we can say it this way, the end of their rope. 
who have run out of options and who don't know where else to turn. Jesus is the Savior of people who are facing desperate situations in life and they, they kind of just cry out, Jesus, help me. Jesus is the Savior of people who put their faith in Him knowing that nothing is impossible for Jesus. After all, Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, verse 26, with man this is impossible. And perhaps you look at your life and you look at your situation and you're like, yeah, man, what I find myself in, what I'm facing, it is impossible. And with man it is impossible, but the verse goes on, Jesus says, but with God all things are possible. So let me ask you here this morning, from the beginning, what impossible situation are you facing right now? What desperate need do you have in your life today? Whatever it is, there is always a reason for hope with Jesus. We've already seen it in the last chapter, Matthew 8, and even in the beginning of this chapter here, that Jesus has authority over disease. He has authority over disasters. He even has authority over demons. And now we're going to see that Jesus has authority over death. He has authority over disability, and He has authority over the devil. So remember, when you've got nothing left but faith in Jesus, you've got everything. Why? Because nothing is impossible with Jesus. So let's look at our reasons for hope today. Number one, the first reason for hope is Jesus has authority over death. Our story begins in Matthew 9 when a very desperate father comes to Jesus while Jesus was still at Matthew's house, what we could call a Matthew's party. There at his house. Jesus had just finished rebuking the Pharisees, if you remember from last Sunday, who had accused him of eating with the wrong people. People such as Matthew, this despicable tax collector. And of course, all his friends who were, well, the sinner types, which is all of us here this morning. And the Pharisees come to Jesus accusing him, you're eating with the wrong people because they thought he should be hanging out with them. After all, they thought they were the righteous ones in life when in reality they were no better than the sinners like Matthew and his friends. When the Pharisees asked Jesus why he associated with such sinners, Jesus told them that more than sick people need a doctor, sinful people need a savior. And so in mercy and in grace, Jesus came for sinners because when you think about it, there really is no one else to come for. Jesus came to show mercy because there is no one who deserves God's saving grace. And then, as if to kind of prove the point that no one deserves God's saving grace, we meet in this story here two desperate people who are unworthy of God's grace. But we just saw last Sunday that Jesus loves to save people who others think are unworthy to save. And so it takes us right back to our story of Matthew when Jesus calls him and saves him and radically changes his life. There was nothing worthy about Matthew that deserved that. Just as there's nothing worthy in and of these two people here either of God's healing and saving grace. And what we're going to see is God's grace is at work again through Jesus Christ. Notice the reason for hope here. First of all, 
Jesus gives hope in the midst of despair. He gives hope in the midst of despair. So seek Him. Seek Jesus with your life. This desperate father kneels before Jesus with a desperate plea for help in verse 18. Look what it says. He comes to Jesus and he says, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So dads, just kind of put yourself in the story here. Pretend you're in his shoes and your daughter has just died. And we know from Luke chapter 8 that she's your only daughter. And she's 12 years old, and she's now died. And so this dad, he is in great despair, and he's now pleading with Jesus, come, come to my house and lay your hand on my daughter, and she will live. We learn over in Mark chapter 5 that this father's name was Jairus, and he was one of the rulers of the synagogue, which means he was a Jewish man, and He was a man of considerable influence and respect among the Jewish community. But it also means that he would have been part of the religious leaders at that time in the Jewish community that up to this point had rejected Jesus. They had despised Jesus. They even hated Jesus. And they even were seeking to discredit Jesus as the very Son of God. And yet, here is this man who was part of that group And he's now pleading for Jesus for help. Why? He's desperate. There's no other explanation for his actions. And so he comes to Jesus because his daughter is on the brink of death, according to Mark and Luke. And then he is later told that it's too late. His daughter has just died. And so in desperation... He turns to Jesus Christ. Perhaps he's heard of Jesus and the miracles he's performed and his great teaching that he teaches with authority. He heals with authority. And perhaps he thinks to himself and even believes within his heart, man, he can heal my daughter. He can raise her from the dead and bring her back to life if he simply touches her. True, this desperate father may have turned to Jesus because he had nowhere else to turn. But what I love about this is Jesus doesn't seem to care what his motives were. He came to Jesus, yes, in desperate faith. You know what? It was enough. As James Boyce writes in his commentary, who was a great pastor, has written many, many books, who is now passed, listen to what he says. This lesson is clear. If someone has a need that no one else is able to meet, he can turn to Jesus. There's always hope. But this desperate dad is just the beginning of this story. It's the first of two miracle stories that are interwoven with each other, and so they kind of build on one another. They comment on each other, and they kind of uh, teach each other, or not teach each other, but they they teach us as they are interwoven here. Jesus and Jairus did not get very far before they are approached by a desperate woman with a very desperate situation. Matthew tells us here just enough so that we can sympathize with her desperation. Look what it says in verses 19 and 21. It says, so Jesus arose and followed him, that is this, this grieving father, And so did his disciples, and suddenly 
A woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. So get the picture here. Imagine this with me for a moment. Here's a woman who has suffered from a flow of blood for 12 years. And she is desperate for help, but most of all, she's desperate for hope. Especially when you consider that Mark chapter 5 tells us that over those past 12 years, she has spent all her livelihood, all her financial means on various physicians in trying to get help from various doctors of her condition. And all she's learned at the end of losing all her money on this is that she's only getting worse, not better. This woman's physical disorder would have devastated her life. Her flow of blood made her, first of all, ceremonially unclean, which meant she was unable to enter the temple. She was unable to participate in the Jewish religious life, life of worship. She would have also been socially isolated or ostracized because of her condition. Because to touch someone who is unclean is to become unclean yourself. So imagine being separated from people, living in isolation for 12 years, and nobody has been able to do anything about it. No wonder the language here. It's almost like she's saying over and over to herself, if only I could touch the hem of his garment. If only I could get to him. If only I could just touch, I would be made well. She's desperate. And don't miss how this woman approached Jesus. It's very interesting here. She's so filled with, with shame that she doesn't approach Jesus like all the other people have. She doesn't fall down in front of Jesus. Instead, she kind of sneaks through the crowd of people. She comes up from behind Jesus, and she secretly touches the hem of his garment. Mark 5 tells us that when she touched his garment, immediately Jesus sensed power leaving his body. And he turned to his disciples and he asked them, Who touched me? Well, the disciples, they're rather baffled by this that Jesus would even ask such a question since there were so many people that day pressing in around Jesus and the disciples. After all, are you serious? You're asking who touched you? Well, everybody's touched us. But Jesus knew this touch was different. And so he looked around until he saw the woman. And get this. Notice this. Notice how gently Jesus responds to her in verse 22 when he says, Be of good cheer. Oh, those are words of hope. Daughter, your faith has made you well. This is language of affection and affirmation from Jesus. This woman had every reason to abandon hope, and yet Jesus gives her hope in the midst of her despair. She sought physical healing, but let me tell you, she received far more than that, as we always do when we seek Jesus in faith. Jesus made her well. He took away her shame, and He made her whole again. And Jesus acknowledged that it was her faith that unleashed His power. Now let's just kind of pause here for a moment. Let's step back from this story. 
And just think about with me how Jesus cared enough to stop and give attention and affirmation and ultimately hope to this desperate woman. Jesus' love, His grace, His mercy, His compassion, let me tell you, it is immensely personal. Which means that as a child of God, Jesus is familiar with your struggles in life. Whatever they might be, let me tell you, you have His attention. So know this, despite the fact that there are all kinds of people, millions of people in this world who are suffering, Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows every detail of it, and He cares. And he understands your pain in a way that nobody else does. And he is committed as your Savior and as your Lord to meeting the deepest needs of your heart in the midst of your struggles. Folks, that is great hope. That's really good news. So remember when it comes to Jesus, you cannot get lost in the crowds of people in this world. You have his attention you have His affirmation, and He gives hope in the midst of despair when we seek Him in faith. Second of all, Jesus, though, gives life in the midst of death. So trust Him. By the time Jesus and the Father arrived at the house, the funeral process had already begun. According to Jewish customs, the family had already brought in flute players and mourners for the funeral. But Jesus sent the crowd and the mourners away. And I love what he tells them in verse 24. Look at it. He says, make room. Make room. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn. Now, just imagine with me here. Can you imagine sitting at a funeral with the coffin in front? Perhaps it's even an open casket. And somebody walks in and says, Go home. Go home. You're not needed here. There's no reason to be here. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Now, we would probably respond the same way these people did. They laughed at Jesus. And this laughing is not a, a joyful laugh. It's a, a mocking laugh. It's a scornful laugh. But why? After all, they knew who Jesus is. They knew, or they know, the father pursued Jesus in his last desperate hope for his daughter. So why did they laugh? Well, they know Jesus, but they don't, well, really know Jesus. You see, they think to themselves, oh, he can heal a few diseases, but not this. He can't raise the dead. But they don't know the power of Jesus. They don't know that nothing is impossible for Jesus. They don't know that, yes, the girl is die, has died, but with Jesus, her death is just a temporary thing. This tendency to underestimate the power of Jesus is so common among people who, well, let me say it this way, who simply know Jesus as kind of an acquaintance. They know him from afar. They follow him casually. But they don't really know him. 
Even during his ministry on earth, many people thought Jesus was what? Just another prophet. Just another prophet from like the Old Testament times. Mighty in word and works, to be sure, but no more than a prophet. And today, many people still think the same thing about Jesus. They believe he existed. They believe he walked this earth, but he's a good teacher. He's just a prophet. He's just another man. Jesus is indeed a prophet, but he is also the great high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins and my sins. And further, Jesus, as he proves in these stories here that he is the very Son of God who has authority over life and death and the same power that grants this girl life grants us eternal life when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And then Jesus, I love it, he gave a sign of his resurrection power by raising Jairus' daughter from death to life. When according to verse 25, Jesus simply took the girl's hand and she arose, it says. Whoa! Jesus has authority over death. And this is reason for hope, amen? Oh, we should be so excited about this. And we know in the book of Matthew that this authority over death will be all the more evident when Jesus goes to the cross. And what does he do there? He dies on the cross for our sins. But after three days of death in the grave, what happens? He rises from the grave. He comes back to life. And so, as we think about this, even in our own world today, listen, HIV and AIDS does not have the last word. Cancer does not have the last word. Parkinson's disease doesn't have the last word. Any other disease that you can think of, it doesn't have the last word. Mark it down. Death does not have the last word. Jesus always has the last word. And he has shown that he has the last word with his resurrection from the grave. Yes, death is real. There's no doubt about that. We see it every day. We face it all the time. Death is real. Death is sobering. Death is serious. But with Jesus, get this, with Jesus, death is always temporary. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2, 21? To live is Christ and to die is gain. So to die, let me tell you, it's good when you're with the one who has authority over death. Let me give you another reason for hope out of these stories here. Number two. Jesus not only has authority over death, but he has authority over disability. In his ministry on earth, do you realize Jesus gives sight to the blind more often than he performs any other miracle? So it's not surprising when these two blind men discover that Jesus is walking their way and they begin to follow him in hopes that he may heal them. What is surprising is what these two blind men cry out in verse 27. Look at it. They follow Jesus and they cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Contrary to Jesus' usual custom with the needy, Jesus initially ignores them. And he proceeds to enter a house. But these blind men are desperate. They're persistent. 
And so they follow Jesus inside the house and they approach him again. Their desperation paid off because Jesus now engages these two men when he asks them a question in verse 28. Look at it. He says, do you believe that I am able to do this? And when they respond, yes, Lord, Jesus simply touches their eyes and says to them in verse 29, according to your faith, let it be to you. Now, I don't know about you. I'll just share from me. My dad was the pastor here for 31 years. Basically, I moved. I, I've been a part of this church since I was five years old. I've heard story after story after story of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels. And you know what? To this day, I never grow tired of them. These miraculous stories about Jesus Christ, his power, his authority. What an awesome reminder we have of the reason to hope. These two blind men show us that when you've got nothing left but faith in Jesus, you've got everything. Why? Because nothing is impossible for Jesus. Let me show you why we have reason for hope from this specific story here. First of all, Jesus is the promised Messiah. That is, He came to save us from our sins. Remember what these two blind men called Jesus? They cried out to Him, Son of David! Son of David! Now this is the first time in the book of Matthew here that someone apart from Matthew himself calls Jesus the Son of of David. This takes us all the way back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which is how Matthew introduces us to the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the Son of David's interesting title is a messianic title. In other words, it's a title for the promised Messiah. So these two blind men, you know what they are saying to us by when they call out Son of David? They're telling us they know something. They know a little bit about Jesus. They know Jesus is more than just a miracle worker here. They know he's the promised Messiah who has come to save us from our sins. They know the promise in Isaiah 35, 5 that says, The eyes of the blind shall be opened when the Messiah comes. And so they reason to themselves, Hey, he's the Messiah. He's the son of David. We're blind. He can open our eyes. Now this is incredible. You say, well, why is that so incredible? Think about it. Even in their blindness, these two guys were able to see what the Pharisees and what the scribes and what so many people in the crowds were unable to see about Jesus. That He is the promised Messiah who came to save us from our sins. And that's a reason for hope. Perhaps we should pray, even ourselves today, that God, would open our eyes spiritually so that we can see Jesus for who He is and who we are in our need of a Savior. 
A second reason we have hope in this story is Jesus is not only the promised Messiah, he is gently merciful. He's willing to save. These two blind men cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And so they believe what about Jesus? Not that he's not only that he's the promised Messiah, but they believe he's merciful. And of course, the mercy they seek from Jesus is that he would heal them of their blindness. And get this, number three, Jesus is incredibly powerful. He's able to save. Jesus demonstrates his power when he simply touched the blind men's eyes, and their eyes were open. And of course, Jesus did not need to touch their eyes. We already know this from other miraculous stories. He could have simply healed them by the power of his word. But Jesus touched them. He touched them for their sake. Think about it. These two blind men could not see the love and the compassion on Jesus' face when he healed them. And so what does Jesus do? He touched them as a token of his mercy. So nothing is impossible for Jesus. He has authority over death. And he has authority over disability. And that's reason for hope. But wait, it gets better. Look at number three, a third reason for hope. Jesus has authority even over the devil. The final story here is about Jesus healing a mute man who was demon-possessed. Matthew tells the story in just a few broad strokes here in verses 32 through 34. Look at what it says. And as they went out, we're talking about Jesus now and his disciples. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. So he's, he's mute as a result of demon possession here. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. So we have another demonstration here of Jesus' power to heal. And you got two different responses going on to this demonstration of power. The crowds, their response was what? They marveled at this demonstration of power. They'd never seen anything like this in the present or even all of Israel in the past. And they're amazed by it. But the Pharisees, not. They refused to believe. They tried to discredit the works of Jesus here in this miracle. They said he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. And in effect, what they are saying is they are calling the very works of Jesus here as some kind of satanic trick. They attribute his power to Satan himself. And the question is, why? Why are these Pharisees, why are they so dead set on discrediting Jesus as the Son of God? Well, because if Jesus does these miracles by the authority of who he is as the Son of God, then that means they are wrong about Jesus. But more than that, if Jesus has 
the power in Himself as the Son of God to do these works, then they have to acknowledge something about Jesus. They have to acknowledge that He really is who He says He is. They have to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And the Pharisees would rather believe that it was the power of Satan because they don't want to submit their lives to Jesus. They don't want to submit to His sovereign rule over their lives. After all, they think they're self-righteous. They are self-sufficient. We don't need Jesus in our lives, messing up our traditions. The Pharisees here are missing the whole point. As so many people still today are missing the whole point about Jesus. These Pharisees are so blind, just as people today are so blind, that they refuse to see Jesus for who He is. They refuse to see that His demonstrations of power that are before us right here in the Gospels are proof that He's the very Son of God who has come to save us from our sins. And in the process, these Pharisees miss the very reason for hope as so many people today are missing out on the reason for hope in this chaotic world that we live in. Let me show you this too quickly. First of all, Jesus' ministry on earth shows us Satan has been defeated. That's the big picture we're seeing here in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 with Jesus' authority. With each of these miracle stories, you know what Matthew is showing us? He's showing us that Jesus has authority over Satan. He has authority over sin. He has authority over all the effects of sin, such as disease and disasters and disabilities and death. And Jesus has authority over all of them. That's the big picture here. I hope you're seeing it. And of course, the climax comes when Jesus defeats Satan with his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. So Satan has been defeated, and that's the reason for hope. But folks, it gets better. Look at this, number two. Jesus' promise for eternity tells us Satan will be destroyed. Do you realize there is coming a day, and oh, we long for that day, when Satan will be cast down, and his sting will never, ever be felt again because of Jesus' authority over him. You go to the book of Revelations, or Revelation there in chapter 20, verse 10, and you will read that Satan will one day be cast into the very lake of fire for all eternity at the end of the millennium reign of Christ on earth. Now, let's put all this together. What we've been learning, what we have seen here in these two chapters, Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 9. Let's put it all together and let's ask ourselves the question, what's the big idea? What's the bottom line here that we're seeing and we're learning that Matthew wants us to know? Look at the message here, Matthew 8 and 9. Look at it in your notes on the screen. Jesus possesses absolute authority in the world. Therefore, Jesus warrants absolute allegiance from the world. Now let me just give you a few takeaways real quickly here. First of all, and this isn't in your notes, 
First of all, since Jesus possesses absolute authority, folks, listen, that means something. And it means this. He reigns over us supremely, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. I would suggest that we should pray something like this. Oh, Lord, help us to realize that your ways are better than my ways. Help us to trust your absolute authority. Help us to submit to your supreme reign over us. Why? Because his ways are always best. When we are walking in the midst of sickness and suffering, in the midst of difficulty and despair, oh, please know that his wisdom is higher and greater than your wisdom. We may not understand why things are happening the way they are. We rarely do, do we? We may not understand why the tumor is showing up again on the CT scan. We may not understand why this person died tragically. Why a super hurricane, typhoon, crosses over the Philippines and kills over a thousand people. We may not ever understand in this lifetime why those things happened. But we do know that Jesus reigns supremely. Do you realize what comfort and security this brings to our lives? This means there's nothing that will happen to you this week, this month, or even next year that will catch Jesus by surprise. There's not a moment you face in your life where Jesus will not be on his throne ruling over it all with his supreme authority. And the beauty is, as Jesus reigns over us supremely, he loves us deeply. Listen, Jesus' authority is not selfish. It is selfless. His purpose in coming is what? To save us as sinners from our sins. That is selfless. That is compassion. That is grace. That is mercy on our lives. So the good news is the one who has all authority and who reigns supremely also has love and compassion and mercy for all of us here this morning. The king who has authority over disease, disaster, and demons, and death, let me tell you, he loves you deeply. Let that soak in. Be amazed by that. So what does this authority mean for us today? It means Jesus warrants our absolute allegiance, folks. Did you notice in these stories in Matthew 8 and 9, you basically have three types of people. You can't help but notice the crowds. All the crowds were following Jesus. And the crowds are nothing more than fans of Jesus. They followed his miracles. They followed his teachings because they were curious. They wanted something from him. But let me tell you, very few of those crowds followed Jesus all the way to the cross in Matthew 28. Or earlier than that, Matthew 20, leading up to Matthew 28. 
You have the Pharisees and scribes. You have the religious elite, if you will. And they are rejecting Jesus. In their spirit of self-righteousness, in their spirit of self-sufficiency, they basically said to themselves, we don't need you, Jesus. We could do this on our own. And oh, how this spirit so often is reflected in our own hearts, is it not? So let me urge all of us, let me urge myself, listen, don't be proud in the presence of Christ. Instead, be among the faithful disciples in these stories who renounced everything to follow Jesus. We see that in going back to Matthew 4, in the, when Jesus calls Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, what did they do? They abandoned everything to follow Jesus. We see it in the life of Matthew, this despicable tax collector. Jesus calls him, he leaves everything. But we also see it in some of the people that Jesus healed, such as the leper and the centurion, the paralytic, the sick woman, even this grieving father and these two blind men. In their desperate condition, they all realized we need Jesus. And many of them followed Jesus faithfully. I don't know if you caught it even in our text today, but Jesus commends their faith twice. Two times he acknowledges and commends the faith of this woman when he says, your faith has made you well. He commends the faith of these blind men. According to your faith, let it be to you. So it's not enough just to be like the crowds and marvel at Jesus, be amazed at his demonstrations of power. We must believe. We must have faith in him and then obey him and follow him with our lives. So here's the question from Matthew 8 and 9. And I want you to ponder this question. I urge you to think about this in your heart and even during our response time here. Will you and do you gladly submit to the authority of Jesus? And not reluctantly, but gladly, joyfully, knowing that His ways are best and that His wisdom is higher than ours. And that he can be trusted as the one who reigns supremely and loves you deeply. So will you and do you gladly submit to the authority of Jesus? Let's pray. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're in the midst of a desperate situation. Let, let me encourage you to run to Jesus. Run to him hard and to cry out to Him for His mercy and grace. Even if all you have is a desperate faith, run to Him. Remember, nothing is impossible for Jesus. That includes your sin, your pain of the past, your fear of the future. Listen, they are not impossible for Him. The question here this morning is, do you believe? Are you ready to submit your life to Him? Lord, we come to you this morning as desperate people. Desperate because of our sinfulness and our selfishness. And Lord, we need you to intervene by your grace and your mercy and by your spirit. And that you would open up our eyes. And that we would see you for who you are. And Lord, we would submit our lives to you. We would realign our lives in accordance to your will and your glory. 
And so I ask that you would work during this response time. And may each of us here respond appropriately, asking you to search out our hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Praise team's going to sing, and as they do, and this is your opportunity to respond right where you're sitting. Run to the cross. Run to Jesus. Tell him what you need. He already knows it anyways. Thank you.